and took up surfing. And every now and then when I'm online, I'll see that he's linked to footage of people surfing personally. I always, always click on these links and watch the videos. It is mesmerizing. There's like this whole enormous landscape of water that rises up and it's curling over and everything is in motion and changing dramatically every second. And you can sort of sense the tremendous volatile force of this huge body of water. And there, perching gracefully above the shifting maelstrom of power is a man or a woman perched on this little skinny board, bobbing and weaving and gliding and careening through the chaos with perfect poise and calm. I find it absolutely mesmerizing. And if you've ever listened to surfers being interviewed, you know that they often describe their relationship to the water and waves with intensely spiritual language. More than one surfer has described their sport as their religion. The effect of submitting one's whole tiny self, body, mind, spirit, to actively engage with the dynamic movement of this superior force is to experience profound and beautiful unity with something great and powerful. This is the image I want you to hold in your imagination as we sort of push off the shores ourselves and move into the deep waters on the topic of submission. Now, of course, my friend Dave the Surfer Dude only posts videos like the ones that I'm describing. Thankfully, he does not post videos where these godlike surfers are smashed against underwater reefs or flung off their surfboards and into someone else's jet ski. In Dave's videos, surfers are never drowned or lost at sea. Nevertheless, it's largely this potential for damage and loss that makes the spectacle of surfing so compelling. A frail human being, faced with an overwhelming force, interacts with it with beauty, strength, and dignity, and is not crushed by it. Today's passage from Ephesians deals with the topic of submission. And submission can be defined as yielding to a superior force. Yielding to a superior force. Now, that sounds pretty matter-of-fact, and certainly these verses in Ephesians form a calm and straightforward text, setting forth a vision of a peaceful, well-ordered domestic scene where those who have responsibility to other people and those who have responsibility for other people are all called to work for the other's benefit. It's a scene where asymmetrical power structures are navigated with the beauty, strength, and dignity of a surfer in one of my friend Dave's videos. But if you're like me, when you look submission in the face, you encounter an ugly and threatening sea monster. Submission is a horrifying word to us 21st century Americans. An ugly word, an ugly idea. Our nation, after all, was birthed as a revolt against tyranny and oppression and built on the idea that people are and ought to be absolute equals. Some of the first thoughts that come to mind as we read instructions to wives and bondservants are important and loaded questions about troubled histories of oppression and abuse as it relates to gender and ethnicity and nation. These are really important markers of identity, and indeed, our identities are at stake in submission. 
when God created men and women as his image bearers, a certain degree of sovereignty was built into our identities from the beginning. Just by virtue of being human, we are given authority by God, minimally over our own lives, and usually over some other human beings as well. We were created to be kings and queens under Jesus. Whatever authority God has invested in us is in use at all times. Whether we recognize Jesus as Lord or not, whether we submit ourselves to him in love or rebel against him, human beings, as well as angelic beings, exercise real authority over others in varying degrees, whether for good or evil, whether in a worldly manner or in the gospel way. By the same token, however, every human being is called to live in submission to some other human beings. Although we rarely speak or think of it, authority and submission touch every facet of our lives. And therefore, submission is what we're going to look at this morning. We're not going to consider the context for submission that today's text lays out. Um, actually, I'll be preaching again next Sunday, and we'll explore part of this text from a completely different angle. Um, but today we're going to explore how to live under human authority, even though we are Christ's own. If you find yourself repulsed by the idea that you're called to submission to earthly authority, I want to affirm those feelings. In worldly terms, submission is merely the flip side of oppression. Engaging with the powers and principalities of this fallen world from a worldly posture, rather than from a united with Christ posture, is a dangerous endeavor. Worldly submission is forced or coerced. Worldly submission reveals weakness and inferiority and exploits them. Worldly submission seeks to negate our identities. We know this from experience. We can all recall painful clashes with authority. And the reason this is so, the reasons we have such strong reactions to authority is that even the most boring, secular, petty bureaucrat is invested with some degree of spiritual authority. Because all authority is delegated by God, earthly authority is always spiritually charged. And it has great power to serve and to heal or to damage and destroy. In the beginning, God delegated real authority both to angels and to humans, and he did not revoke that from us when we rebelled against his authority. This is why a hurtful word from a parent can sting more deeply than a hurtful word from a friend. This is why an embarrassment in front of a church leader might be remembered for years, whereas an embarrassment with a friend or coworker passes quickly. This is why, even though I'm not much of a crier, a phone call with a crabby customer service person frequently reduces me to tears of impotent rage. <laughs> authority always has a spiritual dimension to it. All authority on earth and above the earth and under the, under the earth eventually answers back to God himself. It ties back to God Almighty. This combination of spiritual authority and fallen, corrupted, sinful humanity is potent, and yet God has not seen fit to remove these flawed, earthly human authorities from over us. In Old Testament and New, the people of God are consistently called to respect and submit to fellow human beings when they're in authority over us. 
even when they're clearly not as smart as we are, even when they're clearly not as virtuous as we are, and even when their will is contrary to ours. Before we go further, there are two important caveats. First, there is no political subtext or hidden political commentary in this message. The only political message I have today I'll put right out there is to learn the difference, notice the difference between instruments of power, which are human beings with temporary political authority, and the eternal source of real power, which is God himself. Proverbs says, God directs the heart of the king like water through his hands. In early infancy and late in life alike, Jesus was harassed by petty, insecure, bloodthirsty leaders in church and state both. And he taught us that ultimately, submission is directed through people to God, not to people. When you're out riding the big waves, it's the ocean you're communing with, not the surfboard. Secondly, true gospel submission actually requires mature wisdom and discernment. We need to learn to submit like kings and queens. Part of what that means is if you're in a relationship marked by abuse or manipulation or coercion, or even if you're not sure that's what's happening but you have questions about it, please, please reach out today for help. Tell me or Father Aaron or a prayer minister, um, even if you're in good relationships, but you constantly feel kind of too small or too little or crushed down or without an identity of your own, please, please, please reach out for help. It is the duty and the joy of the church to help you find freedom and healing and regain the strength and dignity that is your born-again birthright in Christ. Conversely, if you are in a position of authority or influence and you know that you are exercising this in a way that God does not approve of, if you're lording it over others, if you have issues with control or issues with anger, please let someone know this morning so that you can seek freedom from this sin. So with that out there, um, let's return now to this question of submission that lies before us. How can we respond with beauty, dignity, and strength to the call of submission on our lives? How can we submit to flawed, sinful, earthly authorities without perpetuating cycles of abuse and oppression? First, our relationship to authority must be transformed before submission can bear the fruit that God promises to those who obey him. Worldly submission leads to, leads to death, but gospel submission to earthly authority leads us through death to self and into greater, deeper, fuller maturity in Christ. In ancient times, oceans were not recreational destinations to be enjoyed from the comfort of your beach chair or the deck of your charter deep-sea fishing boat. Oceans were not a symbol of the deeply loving, exquisitely ordered, pure and glorious authority of God. Instead, oceans were symbols of overwhelming chaotic power, raw power unleashed in a dangerous and fallen cosmos that forced us fragile human beings to confront our limitations, our frailty, our weakness, our profound inferiority in the face of insurmountable, devastating power. But 
when Christ came to restore his people and this world into right relationship with God Almighty, everything changed. If you're here at our second Easter service um, this year, observe the preparation of the water for baptism. The blessing of the water is an exorcism. When Jesus submitted himself to the baptism of John, he effectively spoke the words, peace be still, over every force that would threaten to kill or destroy us. When Jesus submitted himself to the baptism of John, he purified and blessed the waters so that all who follow him into the submission of baptism might enjoy forever a profoundly changed relationship to power and to authority. Once we were at the mercy of the waters of death, but through the baptism of Jesus, these same waters now bring cleansing from sin, unity with God, and deep, peaceful, profound unity with our brothers and sisters. We may still suffer harm and loss on this earth at the hands of superior forces, but no power on earth or in heaven or under the earth can separate us from the beauty, strength, and dignity that is ours as sovereigns and co-heirs with Christ, as Christ's own. Our value and worth are secured in him forever. Now, when we follow Christ through the waters of baptism, instead of becoming less ourselves through submission to earthly authorities, we become more closely bonded with Christ. We become more fully mature, which is to say we become more fully Christ's own. And what is this identity specifically? Back in the fourth chapter in Ephesians, the vision for our collective future as Christ's body is set forth. May all come to the unity of faith, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, growing up in every way into him who is the head. It's really counterintuitive, but when we submit in a gospel way to earthly authority, we move into deeper maturity. We move into fuller stature. We grow up in every way into Christ. Gospel submission provides a context where we are pressed to grow up into the likeness of Christ. Gospel submission is never a diminishment of our identities, but always a path to greater fullness in Christ. And the reason we know this is true is that the supreme example of submission is the example of Jesus himself. I say that gospel submission is beautiful, strong, and dignified because that is exactly what we witness in the life of Jesus Christ. If Jesus, in whom God is fully revealed, God from God, true God from true God, Lord and sovereign of all, refused to grasp at the equality he embodied and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, we know that we do well when we imitate him. We're going to look briefly at three very real, very specific moments of the submission that Christ modeled for us. No servant is greater than his master. If Jesus Christ himself was perfected through obedience, you and I cannot hope to grow up into our full stature without practicing the discipline of submission. In submitting to his parents, Jesus modeled submission of the wise to the ignorant. In submitting to an oppressive and unjust government authority, Jesus modeled submission of the innocent to the unjust. And in submitting to God the Father, Jesus modeled the submission of authentic desire to authentic love. 
We're going to look now at Luke chapter 2, where Jesus, as a wise young man, submitted to his relatively ignorant parents. Um, you may remember this. His parents have gone up to um, celebrate Passover, um, and they left thinking Jesus was with him, discovered he was not, and came back for him and looked for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard them was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Of all the examples given in Ephesians of authority structures in Christian households, the one that goes down easiest is the commandment um, that children ought to submit to their parents. It fits most easily with our worldly idea that authority and submission are really about inferiority and superiority. We admit the need for children to be guided by adults because we see adults as superior, at least in terms of knowledge, experience, judgment. But this text, like all biblical text on submission to earthly authority, does not support this type of reasoning. It is very, very clear that Jesus' wisdom, spiritual acuity, and sense of identity are superior to that of his parents. This story is an amazing identity moment. His mother says to Jesus, refers to your father and I. And Jesus is revealing his identity when he corrects her, saying, my father is God. It's amazing. In one moment, Jesus is declaring his unique identity as the son of God. And in the next moment, he goes home with his parents and obeys them. If Jesus can honor authorities who were ignorant of his true identity, value, and worth, we can too. Moving on, we're going to look at John 19 to see Jesus model submission of the innocent to the just. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple road, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Here we see a man, Pilate, who embodies the worst of earthly powers. He combines lethal authority with extreme moral weakness. He does hold the power of life and death over Jesus, and he's about to administer the most outrageously unjust execution the world is ever going to see. It is a cruel, cowardly, craven act. 
Pilate doesn't even want to actually execute Jesus, but instead of using his God-given authority to do the right thing and let him go, he wants to kind of manipulate Jesus into protesting his innocence. But Jesus is not cooperating. Like a sheep before his shearers, he is silent. So Pilate powers up, says, don't you get it, Jesus? I am the superior force. I can kill you. In killing you, I have the blessing of the government. I have the blessing of the murderous mob. Heck, I don't even know it, but I have the power of hell behind me, and I can squash you like a bug. But rather than protesting, Jesus calmly witnesses to the truth. He pulls back the curtain on reality and gives Pilate a glimpse of how things really are. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate could only see the worldly dynamic where worldly submission is synonymous with oppression and with weakness. But Jesus, living out of gospel submission, turned the whole world inside out. Brothers and sisters, there are times where we need to resist the earthly authorities. But our fight is not against flesh and blood. Jesus did not bother to oppose the man, Pilate. In submitting to God through the medium of Pilate's earthly authority, he brought all the evil, unjust powers and principalities crashing down like a flimsy, greasy house of cards, which they are. Do you have the power, strength, and dignity to face down the world, the flesh, and the devil when they threaten to crush you into submission? Well, I don't, and you don't either. But Jesus did, and in him, we can calmly and confidently speak truth to power. Brothers and sisters, we do not fight evil by whipping ourselves into a chronic state of outrage and fury. Contrary to what the world is telling you right now, the anger of man does not accomplish the will of God. We wage war out of a place of profound peace and confidence in our union with God and our knowledge that all authority rests in God alone. This is how Jesus turned the world upside down, and this is how we, as meek and humble sovereigns, pattern ourselves after him. Let's turn now to the most shocking facet of Jesus' submission, the sacrifice of his deep, authentic desires to the will of his Father. We're going to look at a really intimate moment in the life of Jesus on the night before his death. This is as recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. This is to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The mystery and the tender terror of this passage is almost unbearable. Jesus shares everything with the Father. He shares essence, 
He shares identity. He shares mission. They are united so closely that Jesus said that doing the will of his Father was bread to him. Obedience to the Father gave Jesus life. The identity of Jesus cannot be realized apart from his sonship to the Father. The love between them is so profound that they dwell inside one another. I am in the Father, and he is in me. But as the time of Jesus' death draws near, the unthinkable happens. It looks like there is a clash of wills between them. The Father is asking Jesus to submit to his, the Father's will, and this request overwhelmed the soul of Christ with sorrow to the point of death. This is an identity crisis. This is an existential dilemma of the highest order, and it is happening to God. In 21st century America, every single one of us is bred to understand that each of us as sovereign individuals have the right, not just the right, but the duty to define ourselves. And in order to do that successfully, we are taught that we must first discover what our deepest and most, most authentic desires are. And then we're supposed to pursue those desires in defiance of everyone around us if we must. To act in opposition to our true deep desires, we are taught, is death to ourselves. And of course, this is true. The world is right. Submission is death. Crucifixion is death. Not just any death. Crucifixion is not mere execution, and it's not merely painful. It was meant to be degrading, debasing, humiliating. This is the cross that we're talking about. This is where all the powers and principalities on earth and below the earth and above the earth are focusing their energies. Night is falling in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's quiet, quiet enough that the disciples are nodding off to sleep. Jesus is alone with his Father, and only the two of them, Father and Son, sense this tsunami, this tidal wave of evil, of oppression, of bloodlust, of nihilism and hopelessness and despair and loneliness, gathering strength to flood the whole world and wipe us out. In this chaos, the father is calling tenderly to his son, calling him forward into sacrificial submission. And Jesus is given the opportunity to either choose his own identity apart from the father or submit to the identity his father is calling him into. The world and all of humanity hangs in the balance. This is the defining moment, even more, I believe, than on the cross. In this moment, will Jesus act in accordance with his own will, or will he submit to the call of love offered in the person of his father God? Thank God he chose love. He chose to sacrifice his will and remain in unity with the Father, and in so doing, he sealed forever our participation in the identity of the Trinity. We are now welcomed into the eternal unity and love of Father, Son, and Spirit and take our identity from a God who is love. So, after this shocking look at submission in the life of Jesus, how in the world do we move on? What might it look like practically for you and I 
to ground our identity as Christ's own in submission to regular old fallible human beings who happen to be in authority over us. Well, I'm far from an expert on this, but I'm going to walk us through some of what this has looked like in my own life. As you may know, I'm on staff at an Anglican church. And in the Anglican church, the authority of the church rests with the bishop, but is delegated to the local rector. Our head pastor, Father Aaron, is at the helm of this ship. It falls primarily to the rector to hear from the Lord to discern the vision and direction of the church. Father Aaron receives insight and input from the congregation and from the bishop and other leaders that he submits to, but effectively he sets the vision for Emmanuel. And well, I'm not the rector, but I'm a leader and a pastor too, and I too hear from the Lord. And occasionally it happens that I see things differently than my rector does. What happens when there's a clash of vision? What happens when the stakes are really high? What happens when the stakes are so high that submitting my vision to his vision would not just result in disappointment, but would create a painful and confusing existential dilemma for me? How can I live out what I believe is my calling in circumstances that don't seem to allow for it? If Father Aaron and I were equal in authority, we'd negotiate a compromise or we might part ways, but we're not equal in authority. Christ calls me into sacrificial submission to himself, and he asks me to use my submission to the man Aaron as the vehicle for the working out of that submission. God calls me to submit to himself as I submit to Father Aaron. So there are a couple of ways I might respond to the ever-present call of submission on my life. I could recognize the call to submission, and I could internalize it as evidence of my inferiority. I could assume that probably I'm incorrect, my ideas aren't very good, I can't hear from God. I could shut down and hang my head and shuffle around, congratulate myself on what a good submissive woman I am. I could do this, but in so doing, I would compromise my identity as Christ's own. On the other hand, I could recognize the call to submission and externalize it. I could reflect on the fact that our diocese does not ordain women to the priesthood. I could conclude that my ideas aren't getting through because of sexism and the patriarchy. Instead of shutting down, I could power up and fight the system and congratulate myself on what a fierce, kick-ass, history-making woman I am. <laughs> I could do this, but in so doing, I would compromise my unity with Christ and his body. No, the call to submission is the call to hold fast to unity and identity, to honor the reality that in Christ, I am a submitted sovereign. Like the bondservant in today's passage, I aim to obey my earthly masters with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as I obey Christ, as a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women. These words, obey coupled with fear and trembling, are reminiscent of the words Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The working out of what it means to submit to sacrifice as mature followers of Christ is to work out our salvation, to grow up into Christ. This is hard work. This is beautiful, strong, dignified work for fully mature, three-dimensional human beings made in the image of God. This is how we learn to surf the big waves, to live in harmony with the ultimate authority that rests in God alone. What does this mean practically? When I believe I hear God saying, plant asparagus, and Father Aaron says, don't plant asparagus, plant beets, the hard work of submission begins. As I go about cultivating the soil and pushing in the beet seeds and watering and weeding, I am simultaneously launched on a journey to grow deeper into my identity as Christ's own. I push my surfboard out into the deep waters and get going. This is always active. It's never passive. I remain actively engaged in the disciplines of prayer and of waiting on the Lord. I ask for wisdom because praying and waiting does not always mean just praying and waiting. Usually, it means continuing to speak up and to act within the context of submission. Worldly submission means shut up and sit down, but gospel submission means keep hoping, keep alert, keep active, be faithful, grow in wisdom, see what God will do next. And in my experience, one of several things is gonna happen. First, sometimes my intense desire to plant asparagus fades away. I may genuinely conclude that I did not, in fact, hear clearly from the Lord. That has happened. That is a valuable experience, as I learned that not everything I think I hear from the Lord is from the Lord. Through submission in the presence of the Lord, God will bring greater clarity, and sometimes that means recognizing errors. And in this way, I grow in mature faith. Sometimes I find that even though we planted beet seeds, we end up harvesting asparagus. <laughs> God always uses the labor of his people. He uses your labor. He uses Father Aaron's labor. He uses my labor. But he always transforms our work. And frequently, this results in something radically different from what any one of us expected. This has been marvelously faith-affirming. This way, I grow in mature faith. Sometimes, though, no asparagus seems to grow, but I may continue to receive confirmation from the Lord, and my faith and desire for his will matures and ripens. And in this way, too, I grow in mature faith, firm in conviction that what the Lord wills, he will accomplish in his time. I stand with the great women and men of faith that are honored in Hebrews who were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, but they saw them and welcomed them from a distance. When the Lord wills something, he accomplishes it. He is not limited by earthly authority. He is not limited by my puny investment or lack of it in the matter. And he is not limited to my lifetime to accomplish it. 
Submission is a hard discipline, brothers and sisters. It cuts against the grain of our pride. It exposes our genuine vulnerability. It frequently flies in the face of our desires. But it is a powerful discipline, too, full of the beauty, strength, and dignity that is ours when we live in submission as Christ's own. That is my hope for you, that next time you see the deep, cold waves of authority or circumstance in your life gathering up in opposition to you, threatening to smash your desires and your identity, I hope you pick up your surfboard, wade out into the chilly, salty water up to your knees, stretch out on top of your skinny little surfboard, and paddle out into the deep. As the waters gather themselves up before you, I hope you stand up and catch your balance. And as you start to slip the surly bounds of earth, move into the barrel to shoot the curl, I hope you reach out your hand and touch the face of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.